I want you to turn in your Bibles with me this morning to the book of Genesis, chapter number 30. Book of Genesis, chapter number 30. If you only paid for the first half of the Bible, you'll be okay this morning. If you only paid for the first five books, you'll be all right. Amen. It's the very first book in the Word of God, Genesis, chapter number 30. And I want to preach to you this morning on a difficult passage. I don't mean that the truth in it is hard for us to receive, but I mean it is a passage that I think has often been bewildering, at least to me personally, and mystifying. And I will go ahead and tell you that I don't think I uh, know everything that there is to be known about it, nor do I think even that I understand, even in the main, the things that, uh, that could be said about it. I feel like there's far more here than I even understand. But the Lord has dealt with my heart about some truths out of this passage, and so I want to share them with you this morning. I will tell you that of all the passages in Scripture, there's probably not a passage that has stumped me more than what we're going to read about this morning. But by the Lord's help, I want us to rightly divide the word of truth, and I want us to let Christ have preeminence in our hearts as we listen to the word of God. Genesis chapter 30, we find ourselves in the lives of a man by the name of Jacob. He has, for 14 years, labored in the home of his father-in-law, Laban. And he's getting ready to leave. He has a desire to go back to Bethel, the place where God had spoken to him. And he approaches his father-in-law about the matter of leaving. Now, Jacob was a shepherd, so was Laban his father-in-law. And his job for those 14 years had been to tend Laban's sheep. And so let's pick up our reading in verse number 25. Genesis chapter number 30, verse number 25. The Bible says, and it came to pass... When Rachel had born Joseph, that Jacob said unto Laban, Send me away that I may go unto mine own place and to my country. Give me my wives and my children for whom I have served thee, and let me go. For thou knowest my service which I have done thee. And Laban said unto him, I pray thee, if I have found favor in thine eyes, tarry. For I have learned by experience that the Lord hath blessed me for thy sake. And he said, Appoint me thy wages, and I will give it. And he said unto him, Thou knowest how I have served thee, and how thy cattle was with me. For it was little which thou hadst before I came, and it is now increased unto a multitude. And the Lord hath blessed thee since my coming. Now when shall I provide for mine own house also? Jacob says, I need to have my own house and my own wealth. I need to take care of my own family. And he, Laban, said, What shall I give thee? Jacob said, Thou shalt not give me anything. If thou wilt do this thing for me, I will again feed and keep thy flock. I will pass through all thy flock today, removing from thence all the speckled and spotted cattle, and all the brown cattle among the sheep, and the spotted and speckled among the goats. And of such shall be my hire. So shall my righteousness answer for me in time to come when it shall come for my hire before thy face. Every one that is not speckled and spotted among the goats and brown among the sheep, that shall be counted stolen with me. Laban said, Behold, I would it might be according to thy word. And he removed that day the he-goats that were ring-straked, means they were striped or they had strakes upon them, and spotted. And all the she-goats that were speckled, meaning they were mottled and spotted, how we traditionally think of spots on an animal. And every one that had some white in it, and all the brown among the sheep, and gave them into the hand of his sons. And he set three days' journey betwixt himself and Jacob, and Jacob fed the rest of Laban's flocks. And Jacob took him rods of green poplar, 
and of the hazel and chestnut tree and peeled the white streaks in them. In other words, he peeled the bark off of them and made white streaks in them and made the white appear, which was in the rods. And he set the rods which he had peeled before the flocks in the gutters in the watering troughs when the flocks came to drink, that they should conceive when they came to drink. And the flocks conceived before the rods and brought forth cattle ring-straked, meaning striped, speckled, meaning mottled or having small spots on them, and spotted, meaning having larger discolorations. And Jacob did separate the lambs and set the faces of the flocks toward the ring-straked and all the brown in the flock of Laban. And he put his own flocks by themselves and put them not unto Laban's cattle. And it came to pass, whensoever the stronger cattle did conceive, that Jacob laid the rods before the eyes of the cattle in the gutters, that they might conceive among the rods. But when the cattle were feeble, he put them not in. So the feebler were Laban's and the stronger Jacob's. And the man increased exceedingly and had much cattle and maid servants and men servants and camels and asses. We'll stop our reading there and pray. Lord, we love you this morning. Thank you for the word of God. Lord, even passages that mystify us, even things that uh, we don't understand. Lord, we know that the word of God is powerful. It has the ability to work in our hearts and minds, and it's the sword of the Spirit of God. He'll wield it to deal with us and to speak to us if we'll have open hearts before you this morning. Lord, I pray that as we approach this passage of Scripture, you'd help us to rightly divide the word of truth. Guide my words and my thoughts in such a manner as to clearly convey the meaning of Scripture. And Lord, help us to be obedient as you speak to our hearts today. Lord, I don't know the heart's condition of any person here, but Lord, I know you love these people here. Lord, just like you love me. Lord, I know you have a desire that they know you personally, that they be saved and their lives be changed. So Lord, I pray that you'd work in their hearts today and that each and every heart's need would be met by the grace of God. We'll be sure to thank you for it. Lord, we love you. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. This morning, I want to preach to you on this thought. Ring straight, speckled, and spotted. Or we maybe could give this title in addition, that these sheep and goat, they were known by their wool. I told you a moment ago that this is probably one of the most uh, mystifying passages of Scripture in all of the Word of God to me. There are things that even at the end of this, I would have questions about, and even in my personal study, as I read through this passage of Scripture, you might come up to me and say, Preacher, I have a question, and I just run away from you, amen, because I don't have the answer for it. There's passages in the Word of God that oftentimes I think people are scared away from in the study. I'll tell you that I've read literally every resource at my disposal in this passage of Scripture. And I found none of them to be altogether satisfactory in answering just exactly what has happened in our text before us today. And so I want us to look at an overview of this passage, but then I want us to move past it and consider some principles that God is teaching in this text. Now, in case you were somehow lost in the midst of the reading, I'll give you a quick overview of what's happening. Jacob is getting ready to leave and go back to Bethel. He wants to leave with his wives, Rachel and Leah, and his children, and go back home to the place that God had called him to be. So he goes to his father-in-law, Laban. It's interesting to watch these two men throughout the years. They are both deceivers. They are both dishonest men. They are both tricksters. And it is a master class in how to trick the trickster when you look at Jacob's dealing with Laban. 
And so he goes to his father-in-law and says, you know, all these years I've labored for you, but I've not got anything to show for it. You're much wealthier than you were when I started. God blessed uh, you for my sake, but here I am. I'm a grown man. I've got my family. I've got my children. And I have no way to provide for them. I need to leave and go make my own way in the world. Laban's response is, you can't leave, Jacob. I need you. You're too much of a help unto me. Now, Laban didn't care about Jacob, but he did care about his pocketbook. And he knew, he could see that God had blessed him for Jacob's sake. And so he asked him, he says, appoint thy wages. Tell me what you want. Name your salary, Jacob, and I will give it to you. Well, Jacob says, uh, Laban, I don't want you to give me anything. Instead, he says, I want God to bless me, and I believe God will bless me if I leave the matter to Him. So here's how we'll do that. He says, we'll go through all of your sheep and all of your goats, and we'll find everyone that has some sort of discoloration on it. These were often the less desirable of the animals. And he says, we will remove all of those and separate them from all of the white sheep and the black or brown goats, which were the more conventional color. Then he says, I'll start raising your flock. And in years to come, everyone that is born of these sheep, but is in some way discolored, that will be my hire. I don't want to get ahead of myself in the message, but statistically speaking, very often a shepherd could expect some 10 to 20 percent of the flock as payment for their tending of the flock, as well as a portion of the wool and milk and meat that might come from it. And statistically speaking, the likelihood of these animals producing any amount of offspring of a considerable size were much less than 20 percent. So Laban hears this, and immediately he smells a good deal. And he says, all right, Jacob, that sounds good to me. We'll do that very thing. Well, then that very day, Laban goes, and amongst his flock, he separates or segregates apart every single animal that has some manner of discoloration. And then not trusting Jacob, to be honest in the matter, he puts those animals into the hands of his sons and separates them from the other flock by three days' journey. He says, I don't want Jacob sneaking any sheep over to the other flock in the middle of the night. I want to be sure that he's not going to cheat me. He then leaves the majority, the main flock that he has of all of the purebred animals, all of the animals that are entirely the sheep are white, the goats are black or brown. He leaves them in Jacob's care and in Jacob's hands. Jacob then does an unusual thing. The Bible tells us that he gets these branches off of these trees and he peels away the bark and lays them in the watering trough. And he does this believing and understanding that whenever the uh, sheep and the goats come to drink from the watering trough, that these branches that are laid in the troughs will cause these animals to go in heat and they will produce more offspring. We also, as a second principle of this uh, breeding program that Jacob institutes, he sets these animals so that they are facing or watching animals that are ring-straked as well as the dark-colored goats among them. As a third principle, Jacob takes the stronger of the animals and breeds them exclusively with his flock that has been produced of the discolored animals, and he only breeds the weaker ones with Laban's sheep. In this process, the Bible tells us in verse number 43 that the man increased exceedingly and had much cattle. In other words, God blessed him through this process. Now you say, well, preacher, that's interesting, but how do we explain the things that Jacob did? Well, as I've studied, I see that there are four possible explanations as to what Jacob has done in this passage and as to why it worked. 
The first is this. It's possible that what we're reading here is scientific. In other words, that Jacob, though he may not have understood all the particulars of the science that he was engaging in, as an experienced and wise shepherd, as a man that had tended the flocks of his father-in-law for 14 years, but then the flocks of his own father Isaac for many long years before that, that he had picked up a thing or two, that he had learned something about the way these animals bred and the offspring that they produced. It's amazing how long it takes science to catch up with the Bible sometimes. You know, long before, uh, you know, people had masks and long before people was washing their hands and long before the idea of germs and airborne illnesses was really a thing, all the way in the Old Testament, God gave the law of the leper that they were to stay downwind from people and they were to keep a distance from them, that they were to cover themselves so that they would not spread that leprosy to someone else. Sometimes it takes generations for science to catch up with the Bible. And it's interesting because at the time, no one would have known this, at least not in textbooks, but uh, long about the late 1800s, there was a man by the name of Mendel that came along. And with his botany experiments, he discovered what we call Mendel's Law of Heredity. And the idea of dominant and recessive traits and genes. In other words, the idea that though these sheep, though two sheep that were both pure white, when they bred together, that there was a statistical possibility and even probability that amongst a certain amount of litters of those sheep or or, or groups of those sheep, there would be a certain percentage of them that would be discolored. That though that gene had not been brought forth on the parents, that it would come to the surface in the offspring that were produced. I don't know how much that Jacob understood about this, but it seems as though as he's performing these three principles, he believes that they'll be effective and he understood. You breed the stronger sheep with the stronger sheep. You breed the stronger goats with the stronger goats. As we've already said, was typical at that time. The predominant uh, coloration of sheeps at that time was sheeps in that part of the world were mostly white and then the goats were mostly brown and black. And he said, I can uh, breed the stronger ones together along with those that because of their recessive genes or traits have produced off-colored the offspring and they will produce more that will belong in my flock. Oftentimes people have got hung up at the notion, uh, verse number 41 describes uh, how that uh, Jacob laid the rods before the eyes of the cattle in the gutters that they might conceive among the rods and A lot of times people have looked at this. There's an old uh, sort of scientific principle that uh, allegedly has been disproven today. I don't really know because I don't know what science will be disproven by what science uh, next week. But the notion of prenatal influence, the idea that the things that a person interacts with or looks at could affect the development of the offspring. I don't know whether there's any truth to that or not, but I will just notice this. The Bible never actually says that he did this so that the cattle would stare at the rods merely says that he laid them in the troughs that were before the eyes of the cattle. It's interesting, some commentators note the fact that there are actually chemicals in these uh, various trees and branches that would be considered an aphrodisiac that would cause these animals to go into heat when they drank the water out of those troughs. And the word conceive in this passage, that's actually what it means. It means to become hot or to go into heat. So here's what Jacob understood. A certain portion of these offspring are going to be partly colored. And if I can cause them to have more offspring, it will produce more that will go into my flock. So it's possible that there is a scientific explanation to this. Number two, it's possible that the explanation for this is superstitious. 
A lot of times commentators will say, well, Jacob was just practicing a wives' tale when he did these things. And while I can't speak for what Jacob thought and what Jacob believed when he carried out this action, I will just say this, he's the one that wound up with the cattle. Amen? Whatever you want to say about what he did, something seemed to be working for him. Some would say, well, he is practicing sort of old wives' fables and, and superstition. There's a third explanation of this passage. And that's that what's happening here is, however much it may be scientific, and however much it may be superstitious, the primary principle here is that it is supernatural. We didn't read it, but... Uh, we'll take time to later in the message, but when you get into chapter 31, here's what Jacob says. He says, one day he was there watching these animals drinking at the troughs, and God gave him a vision in which he saw that all the rams that leapt upon or bred with the sheep were all ring-straked, speckled, and spotted. And that the angel of the Lord answers him and says, I've seen the way that Laban has treated you and I'm going to bless you as a result of it. In other words, the fact that at the end of the day, whether there's any science behind it, whether it was ranked superstition, the reason it worked is because God blessed it, God honored it, and God increased Jacob. I would certainly say, irrespective of whatever opinions we may have of it, it's hard to be a Bible believer and not recognize that God had blessed Jacob through this process. But then we arrive at a third or a fourth explanation and or a fifth or a sixth. I don't know where we're at in it. Amen. We arrive at a fourth explanation. And I'll go ahead and tell you, this is sort of a half explanation. Here's what I mean. I'm not going to speak to the science of it, to the superstition of it, or even necessarily to the supernatural nature of it. But I think we must admit this. God must have put this in the Bible for a reason. There's no wasted space in your King James Bible. Everything's there for a reason. And while there may be things that you or I can't answer about what happens in this passage, we must, I think, as Bible believers, all acknowledge that this is here for a reason and that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and it's all profitable. There must be something God has to say to your life and mine here. With that in mind, I would suggest this, that there's probably a sense in which, whether it's scientific, whether it's superstitious, even understanding it to be supernatural, that it must be symbolic. Some commentators suggest that God commanded Jacob to do this, not because it would, through any manner of science or biology, produce this, and not because he was trying to encourage or instigate him to superstition, but that this became an activity or a principle on which he could hang his faith and believe God and trust God. It's possible that God did tell Jacob to do this. It's possible he did not tell him to do this. We do know that God told Jacob that he was going to bless him in this fashion and in this manner. But some would suggest this is similar to the brazen serpent in the book of Numbers in the wilderness. That there was nothing about that brazen serpent that was supernatural or, or, or powerful or potent in any way. But because God told the children of Israel, when you're bit by these serpents, look to the pole and live. That because the word of God is powerful, they responded in faith and obedience. And God honored that and blessed them because of it. It's possible that Jacob is merely exercising faith concerning God's instruction and commandment. But what I am firmly convinced of this morning is that even if there's things you and I can't untangle about this passage, hey, there's something for us to learn here. There's something for us to understand. So where do we start? Well, here's the question I would ask this morning. Why the ring straight speckled and spotted? 
You know, God could have done this in any fashion that He chose to. But God goes out of His way to use this process and to use these sheep and these goats in this manner. Well, there's three things I would notice about these ring-straked, speckled, and spotted sheeps and goats. I would notice, number one, that they were distinct. We could say it this way, they were unusual. As we said a moment ago, it was very common in that part of the world at that time. And I don't know, I'd I'd maybe have to ask a resident shepherd, amen, he might know better than I do. But it was very common at that time for the vast majority of sheep to be white. And that that was sort of the standard that was expected. And the vast majority of goats were black or brown, all one solid color. And that that was what was expected, that that's what was anticipated. And so here's what God says to Jacob. He says, I'm going to bless you, Jacob, but I'm not going to do it with the world's standard. I'm not going to do it with what is uh, desired and what is appreciated in the world. I'm going to give you the weird sheep. I'm going to give you the weird goats. Hey, listen, sometimes as a pastor... Well, no, I better not say that. Can I tell you this? While we ought not strive in and of ourselves to just be peculiar, unusual for the sake of being unusual, and I don't think there is anything noble about trying to be an oddity in this world, I will tell you this, if you live for Jesus Christ, it's going to make you distinct and unusual. You're not going to look like the rest of the flock. You're not going to look like the rest of the herd. You're not going to live like the rest of society. It's going to change the way you live. It's going to change the way you behave. Hey, can I remind you what Christ said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 13? He said, ye are the salt of the earth. But if the salt have lost its savor, wherewith shall it be salted? It is thenceforth good for nothing but to be cast out and to be trodden under foot of men. I don't think Christians ought to work to be weird, but I do think if you walk with the Lord, it will make you different than the world around you. These animals, they were distinct. But then I would say, number two, by dint of that, they were also diminutive. You say, what do you mean, preacher? Well, they were the minority. They weren't the majority of sheep. They weren't the majority of goats. Instead, the reason Laban jumps at this offer, he's been a shepherd a lot longer than Jacob has, and he has watched these flocks, and he has bred these flocks, not just of sheep in general, but of the very sheep that Jacob will be overseeing. And he knows what a rarity it was for two parents that were of solid coloring like that to produce offspring that was modeled or was varied in its coloring. In other words, he knows Jacob ain't going to get rich doing this. And he knows it is rare that you'll find an animal that would meet this criteria. Can I say you this? Hey, listen, you and I as Bible-believing Christians committing and consecrating our life to Christ, that's going to make us distinct. But also recognize this. I don't say it to discourage you, but I do say it to, 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 uh, to firm your resolve. I do say it uh, to undergird your consecration and your commitment. Don't ever expect that Bible-believing Christians are going to be in the, minor- or in the majority. Don't ever think that it's going to be easy to live for Christ. Don't think that as you live for Jesus Christ that you'll always be surrounded by a mountain and multitude of people that love and support what you're doing. We're living in a world that is hostile towards the things of Christ. And we must reckon within our mind that there's nothing... Hey, there's nothing wrong with being in the minority if we're right. There's nothing wrong with being in the minority if we're right. It's okay. I'd rather be right with God than wrong with the crowd. I'd just remind you of a principle the Lord set forth in Matthew chapter 7 concerning this matter of of faith in God and of pursuing and seeking God. He says, enter in at the straight gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction, and many there be which go in thereat. Because straight is the gate and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. There's a lot more going to hell than there are going to heaven. 
I don't relish in that. I don't rejoice in that. But I do recognize that. And I want you to recognize that if the if the metric of your life is trying to fit in with this world system as as cleanly and closely as you possibly can, that's going to put a distance between you and the Lord. If your if your priority is just to try to fit in and to try to not stick out and to try to raise kids and have a home and have a family that nobody notices anything different about and that you just do everything you can to try to go along to get along, that's going to be a problem in your Christianity. They were distinct, they were diminutive, but then I would notice this, that these type of sheep, they were despised. Uh, You say, well, preacher, why didn't people do what Jacob did before Jacob did it? The laws of selective breeding, I don't think, were lost on shepherds at that time. I don't think that anything... I mean, listen, obviously Laban understood the principle because he segregated the two groups of his flock. He understood that if the stronger sheep bred with those that were already speckled, spotted, and ring-straight, that it would produce offspring. So Laban knows this. He understands this principle and concept. So it wasn't that Jacob was doing something that was all that new and, and revolutionary. They deliberately did not selectively breed and deliberately breed sheep or goats that were colored in this fashion and in this way. Well, why is that? Well, I mean, I think a little common sense would answer it. Uh, for one thing, the wool itself would be less valuable. If they had sheep that were brown or were black, the wool that came from it would be distinctly less desirable because wool would often be used today just as it was then in clothing that could be dyed any number of different colors. They were not only that, oftentimes they were considered to be less desirable because they were considered to be weaker. They were considered to be more fragile and and more feeble. And so we could say this, the thing that God used to bless Jacob was the thing that the rest of the world wasn't interested in and had cast off and saw no value in. Can I say in our lives, if we live for Jesus Christ, we ought not relish in being hated by the world, but we ought to recognize it's going to happen. If we live for Christ, it's going to make us different. If we live for Christ, the world's not going to understand that. I'm not saying we ought to constantly live in a war zone of our own bad personality, but I am saying we need to recognize that if we have Christ living in us and we let Christ live through us, that's going to cause the world to not appreciate the manner of living that we engage in. They were distinct and diminutive, but then they were despised. They were undesirable. It reminds me of what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. He says this, For ye see your calling, brethren, How that not many wise men after the flesh, meaning people that are educated or considered to be esteemed for their academia in this world, not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, meaning people that are powerful, not many noble, meaning people that are prestigious or of high birth. He says not many of those folks are called. But God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. And base things of the world and things which are despised hath God chosen. Yea, and things which are not to bring to naught things that are, that no flesh should glory in His presence. If you sometimes look around Walridge Baptist Church and think, who am I going to church with? Don't feel alone. Amen. We all think that. We think that when we look at you too. Amen. The fact is, people, listen how Paul says it in 1 Corinthians 4. He's talking about the apostles and he says this, being defamed, we entreat. He says, we are made as the filth of the world and are the offscouring of all things unto this day. I'm not trying to discourage you, but I am trying to ready you for the fact. If you get serious about serving the Lord, hey, it's going to make you a sheep of a different color. It's going to make you a goat of a different color. It's going to make you not 
fit in in this world. And oftentimes it will make this world set itself against you. So what do we learn from this passage of Scripture? Well, I think if we look at the things that God says explicitly about what Jacob did and the things that God highlights in this breeding process that Jacob uh, performs in, in, in this flock, I think there's four principles that God is teaching us that are important for our lives. In other words, if I want to be distinct in this world, if I want to make a difference in this world, if I want to live for Christ in this world, if I want to be a sheep of another color in this world if I want to be valuable in the eyes of God in regards to my walk with Him and my commitment to Him and how effective I am in the cause of Christ, then I think there are four principles that this passage teaches me that I have to bear deeply in mind. Notice verse 37 with me. The Bible says Jacob took him rods of green poplar and of the hazel and chestnut tree and pilled white streaks in them. means that he pulled the bark back and left white streaks in them and made the white appear, which was in the rods. And he set the rods, which he had pilled, before the flocks, notice carefully the language of your King James Bible, in the gutters, in the watering troughs, when the flocks came to drink, that they should conceive when they came to drink. And the flocks conceived before the rods and brought forth cattle, ring-straked, speckled, and spotted. A couple things I'd noticed before I make application. One is this. The word cattle being used in your Bible here is not necessarily particularly speaking of cows, but it is often a Bible word that is used to denote livestock. Second thing that I would point out to you is this. A lot of commentators snicker at this passage and they they say, well, how silly that Jacob thought if they stared at these green rods uh, that that was going to make them have cattle or have sheep or have goats of a different color. Well, listen, smart aleck, God never says that's what Jacob thought. The Bible doesn't say he expected that. The Bible merely says where he placed them and that when they drank, he would expect that it would cause them to go into heat and produce more offspring. In other words, the principle here is not necessarily what they are looking at, although I think there's a a, a truth to be applied there, but rather it is what they are drinking of. Here's the truth that God laid on my heart. Our consumption affects us. What trough we drink at affects us. The things we partake in affects us. I can't explain the science of everything happening here, But evidently, here's what Jacob understood. If I can get him to drink the water that has been soaked in these rods, it will produce an effect, a consequence in their behavior and in their life. Now, isn't that just the simplest of principles that applies to your life and my life as well? Most of you were told growing up when we still thought it was a food pyramid instead of a food concrete pad that that what you ate affected what you turned out to be. I don't see no Big Mac sitting around here, amen, so I don't know how true that is. But you were taught, even as a young child, you are what you eat. What you consume will dictate what you become. One of the fascinating passages in Scripture, and it actually relates uh, sort of a little bit to Jacob and to his life, is the birth of a man by the name of Esau, who is the brother of Jacob. The Bible tells us that when Esau is born, they named him Esau, which means red, because he was covered all over in red hair. I don't know what that means for you redheads, but there you go. And, uh, sure, yeah, special means a lot of things. I, yeah. And, and, (laughs) but the Bible then describes later how that the great weakness in his life when he came 
weak from the field and hungering and desired was his brother Jacob was making a, a pot of lentils or a, a bowl of pottage. And the Bible talks gives great emphasis to the fact that he made that red pottage. So here you have Esau who is born. It is his nature to be associated with that which is red. But then that nature produces an appetite for something that is red as well. God is teaching us something in principle here that what is in our nature is the things that we desire, but then that what we consume and yield to further entrenches, cultivates, nurtures, and develops the nature of who and what we are. I'm not suggesting that apart from the saving grace of Jesus Christ that anybody can be anything other than what they are, a born sinner deserving of hell. But I am saying that even you as a saved, born-again believer, you have a choice to make as to what you cultivate in your life. If you consume carnal things, if you with your eyes look upon things that are ungodly, if you with your ears listen to things that are ungodly, if you with your hands and your feet participate in things that are ungodly, if you soak yourself, steep yourself, and stew yourself in unrighteousness, you've got to expect that's going to affect what you produce in your life. Listen, our consumption affects us. I noticed two things. One, it provoked their desires. Caused them to go into heat. This is very likely Jacob's main purpose and goal in this is that they would produce more offspring. You know, the things that we consume in our life, it, it, it feeds an appetite within us. Now, you know this is true. How many of you have found this to be the case that in your life when you begin reading the Bible, you want to read the Bible more? When you stop reading the Bible, you find it easier to not read the Bible. When you pray, you want to pray more. When you quit praying, you don't mind praying less. What's happening in your life? Well, the things you consume, they provoke your desires. They whet your appetite to things. They give you a desire and a lust after things, either things that are good or things that are bad. Paul taught this principle in Romans chapter 8. He says in verse 5, They that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Down in verse 12, this is the point he gets to. He says, Therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh, meaning that which is carnal and unrighteous and ungodly, that which is sinful. He says, We are debtors not to the flesh to live after the flesh. For if ye live after the flesh, ye shall die. But if ye through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. Hey, what are you feeding this morning? It provoked their desires. But then I would say, number two, it prompted their deeds. Now, I don't know. I guess sheep are not known for self-restraint. Because evidently, the moment these animals went into heat, they behaved just as animals do and began to breed and to mate one with another. In other words, their desire eventually led to deeds. You know, the problem in our life is the things we consume will define what our appetite is. And then if that appetite is not mortified and submitted to Christ, if it's not nailed to the cross of Calvary, pretty soon it will dictate the things that we do in our life. There's been people I know a great many times that would have performed, that have done things and engaged in things and partook in things that if you could have wound the clock back 10, 15, 20 years, they would have never believed they would have gotten to that point. But somehow that slow burn of sin's temptation began to work. Listen, iniquity working in their members began to produce in them that which was unclean and that which was unrighteous. They began to consume that which didn't please the Lord and didn't honor God. They began to introduce into their life things that uh, mocked Christ and His authority and His glory and His holiness. And it wasn't long. Their appetites changed. They didn't want the Word of God anymore. They didn't want the truth of God anymore. And it cultivated in them a desire for unrighteousness. Then pretty soon that desire began to bear fruit in their life. 
Hey, listen, Ephesians chapter 5 talks about it. It says this, Be ye therefore followers of God as dear children, and walk in love as Christ also hath loved us and hath given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor. But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not be once named among you as becometh saints. Neither filthiness, nor foolish talking, nor jesting, which are not convenient, but rather giving of thanks. For this ye know, that no whoremonger, nor unclean person, nor covetous man, who is an idolater, hath any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. He says, let no man deceive you with vain words. For because of these things cometh the wrath of God upon the children of disobedience. Be not ye therefore partakers with them. He says, God saved you out of that mess. Why are you going back to that mess? Hey, listen, this passage, it teaches me that our consumption affects us. But then look at verse 40 with me. The Bible says Jacob did separate the lambs. In other words, the offspring. He separated the lambs and set the faces of the flocks toward the ring straked and all the brown in the flock of Laban. And he put his own flocks by themselves and put them not unto Laban's cattle. Now, it appears to me that what he did was separated the flock he was overseeing into three separate flocks. He takes the lambs that were born, the fresh, new, ring-straked, speckled lambs that had been born as soon as they were weaned, and he put them by themselves. And then he takes the the brown among the the goats or, or the cattle of Laban's, those that were still pure of color, and puts them by themselves. And then he takes those that were mature and of breeding age of his own flock that were ring-straked, spotted, and speckled. I'm surprised that was the first time I messed it up. Somebody ought to buy me a Coke after service. And put them by themselves. And then the Bible says he sets their face looking at those flocks. Now, why did he do this? Some people have said his hope was that by seeing these animals of various discolorations, it would cause them to throw offspring that were more of that color. But the problem is they were also looking at Laban's sheep or goats that were all solid and all of one color. Here's what I think he was doing. I think he wanted those sheep to become familiar with the idea to, to for the notion of, of discolored sheep and goats to become normalized to them. I think his fear probably was that these animals would throw these these offspring that were of different colors and that the mothers would abandon them or, or, or discard them or neglect them due to them being different in appearance than themselves. Not only that, he wanted his animals to get familiar with the notion of the solid colored sheep or goats breeding with the discolored animals. He wanted them to see what was normal behavior because he wanted to affect a certain outcome. Are you listening to what I'm saying? We could say it this way. Not only our consumption affects us, but our contemplation affects us. The things we think about, the things we interact with, and the things that become normal to us. I don't even know if I can really say everything I want to say this morning, but there is a full swell propaganda movement in the world to make things seem normal to you that you know are not normal. You know that. You know that. You understand that instinctively. Whenever COVID hit and they started shutting everything down, they started shutting churches down. There was this visceral thing that most people had of, we ain't going to shut down. 
And then all of a sudden, man, the propaganda arm just kept churning and churning and churning. And they started to see other churches doing it. And they started to have excuses and reasons why it was okay. And all of a sudden, this thing that if 20 years ago you had been told, one day the government's going to come to you and tell you you can't have church anymore, son, you'd have been draped in old glory with a pitchfork in one hand and a shotgun in the other. Uh, You would have been ready to go storm the Capitol and do something about it. You would have said, never in America will that ever happen. And then when it did happen, everybody yawned and said, well, that's just the way it is. He said, preacher, that's terrible. Imagine how bad it will be next time. When people have already compromised themselves, when they've already had it normalized to them. I mean, you understand, you you look at Europe and this is like normal over in Europe. This idea that the government, that you don't have rights and the government can just come and take what you have. You understand, I don't know if you know this, I, I, they probably ain't said nothing about it on CNN or Fox and either one, but you understand Europe is burning right now. There are thousands of tractors lined up on the border of, of nations because the EU has come in with their climate uh, the tyranny and, and is crushing people in those countries. And they're literally lining up, shutting down border crossings between nations because they're so sick of it. You don't get to see any of that, but you know why that happened? Because people got used to the government just coming in and saying, that ain't yours anymore. That ain't yours anymore. There's so many things we accept in in life as just normal. And you understand that's always been Satan's desire in people's lives is to normalize what is abnormal. What we look on, what we interact with, what we contemplate, what we accept in our life will dictate how we live and what we become. There's two things we'd say about it and I'll move on. Number one, it was designed to make something natural to them. To keep the mother from abandoning their their offspring that, that, that didn't look like she looked, and, and, and to cause them to accept this as normal activity and behavior. Now, while that could be cast as a bad thing in regards to certain things in culture and society today that I think are corrosive to the identity of Christ in us, in this case, it was a good thing. And can I say that that same application can be made in your life and in mind? You say, preacher, what are you getting at? Well, I'm saying this. The world's trying to make some things look natural to you that are not natural. Some things look okay to you that are not okay. It's trying to make sin look normal. I mean, isn't it amazing? Everything, every show you turn on, it's all sodomites. I mean, it's astounding, isn't it? You know, I mean, something like like 2% of society, but somehow they stumble onto every movie set in existence. Why is that? Is that, I wonder if that's intentional. Oh, I don't know. They're just spending tens of millions of dollars to put it in front of your eyes. They're trying to make that thing normal to you. That visceral reaction you have within you that, by the way, is both scientifically and biologically documented that people have when they see that type of activity, it's disgusting to them. They're trying to override that in your life and make you believe it is you that is messed up and not that. Trying to normalize that thing in your mind. But then let me make a second observation. Hey, there's some things that are not natural to the flesh that we we should try to normalize. Now, part of the reason we just get in and have church, we can have any kind of church we want. I mean, you understand that? Like, it's not complicated. Like, we, we could we could have church where everybody just came in and, and folded their hands and sat demurely and quietly and, and nobody got excited, nobody shouted, and, and we could do all that stuff. I mean, listen, we could have one of them where we come in and the moment the kids hit the door, we hit them with a cattle prod and tase them and, and put them in a pen somewhere so they can't bother you. And We, we could do all those things, right? But we're trying to cultivate an environment here where Christ is both welcome and worshipped and magnified. And there are certain things, hey, listen, it, 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 it's, I want our babies to grow up in a church that's having church. I don't want them to hit eight years old, somebody raise a hand and shout, and they have a, a, an episode because they ain't never been around that before. 
I don't want that to be the case, man. I, I want my kids growing up in an environment where if somebody just gets in the glory and worships the Lord, they don't think that's weird. They don't think that's abnormal. I remember one time years ago, whenever we built our website, I, I, I had a little page, because I don't know, this is a thing you do, I guess, where you're describing what it's like to go to church. You know, like, what can I expect when I get there and this, that, and the other. And I, I remember I had written on there that, you know, we have uh, very, I can't even remember the verbiage I used, very expressive or lively, exciting services, I don't know, whatever. And, and But I put in there, I said, it's not uncommon to hear somebody shout out and praise, to say amen, or or to hear the saints weeping unto the Lord. I got an email one time from somebody and they were bothered by that phrase, saints weeping unto the Lord. And they said, what do you mean by this? And the very first thought I had was, this ain't your church. There's probably another one where you'd be a little more comfortable. Listen, not everybody's got to worship like I worship. Not, Not everybody's got to shout like I shout. But that wasn't even on their radar, the notion that somebody could get happy in the Lord and, and just be crying. I'm not talking about holy laughter. I'm not talking about slain in the Spirit. I'm just talking about enjoying the Lord so much that it brings tears to your eyes. Talking about, like Maze Jackson, you say, the Lord squeeze your heart till tears come out your eyes. And this was weird to them. Well, it's weird to a lot of people. I don't want it to be weird to my kids. I don't want it to be weird to my family. I want them to be used to that. There's some things we ought to normalize. Our contemplation affects things. But then look down at verse 41. The Bible says this, came to pass whensoever the stronger cattle did conceive, that Jacob laid the rods before the eyes of the cattle in the gutters, that they might conceive among the rods. Again, let me just notice, nowhere does it say that Jacob was convinced that them looking on the rods would change anything. Rather, it just merely shows the placement of them. Where were they? They were right down there in the cow or the sheep, rather, goats, in their faces, right in the watering troughs, right where they would be drinking, right where they would get the greatest concentration of that chemical from those rods. But when the cattle were feeble, it says, he put them not in. So the feebler were Laban's and the stronger Jacob's. And the man increased exceedingly and had much cattle and made servants and men servants and camels and asses. In other words, here's what he did. He said, I want the strongest cattle and the most cattle, meaning sheep or goats, to be those that are ring-straked, spotted, and speckled. So these rods that cause them to go into heat, I'm only going to put these into the drinking troughs when the solid-colored sheep that have the best traits and are strongest are there to drink, as well as those that have the coloration that will make them a part of my flock. What he's doing is a very common practice even to this day of selective breeding. He's recognizing this. Strong parents, strong children. Strong parents have strong children. That if they breed with a weak animal, it will make them weaker. That if a weak animal breeds with a stronger animal, it will make their offspring stronger. In other words, that the concourse that they have with each other is going to affect what is produced from them. Let me say it this way, not only our consumption and not only our contemplation, but our communion affects us, our company. Hey, who we yoke up with affects us. It affects us. Whose trough we drink at affects us. Who we drink next to affects us. This is the principle of ecclesiastical separation and personal separation. Uh, this is a very out of vogue. I don't know if you're aware of this, but I just might as well have spoke Latin when I said that to you. Because in modern Christendom, the notion of ecclesiastical separation, uh, it, it, out of out of style would be an understatement. Yeah. 
Like they, they would, they, they, mm, <laughs> they would equate that with burning people at the stake or something. I don't know. And they, they loathe and detest the notion that God's people ought to be deliberate in the people they keep company with. Well, the Bible's very clear on the principle of ecclesiastical separation, but not only ecclesiastical separation, a personal separation as well. That doesn't mean you have to be mean to people that don't know Christ. In fact, I'd say this, if you're mean to lost people, that dishonors Christ. Christ is displeased with that. And it's not to say that we have to be isolationists. It's not to say we have to cloister ourselves away like some monk in a monastery and never interact with the world around us. In fact, Christ explicitly stated His prayer was not that we be taken out of the world, but that we be kept from the world. In other words, that we would be in the world, but not of the world. So we're not advocating here a sort of isolationism. But we are saying this, that who we hang around, it affects who we become. The old saying, you've heard it, we say it to young people all the time. It's funny how these things quit applying when somebody gets 21 years old, but it still applies if you're 21 or 41 or 81 or 101, that if you show me your friends, I'll show you your future. Who you hang around is who you're going to become. And Jacob understood that if he bred these sheep together, it could do one of two things. I could say, number one, this, it can strengthen us. That if strong sheep got with strong sheep, they'd have strong offspring. That if strong goats got with strong goats, they'd have strong offspring. And listen, you know what happens? Your life produces stronger things when you surround yourself with people that are strong in the Lord. Iron sharpeneth iron, the Bible says in Proverbs twenty-seven seventeen. So a man sharpeneth the countenance of his friend. Some of y'all do a lot better if you just find the right crowd to hang around. Some of y'all, if instead of trying to rescue all them people, you'd instead commit and consecrate yourself to Christ and surround yourself by people that are not constantly dragging you down but are still building you up in the Lord, you you might find this, that they that, that you quit getting dragged down and that you actually are able to pull some people up. Who you hang around is going to affect you. And let me say especially, listen, to our young people, who you hang around is going to determine who and what you are. You ain't a rescue squad. You're, you're, a, you're, a, you're a treasure, a, a precious thing in the eyes and sight of God. Don't throw away your life trying to hang around a crowd that ain't going to do nothing but drag you to the very gates of hell. Listen, it can strengthen us. Or number two, it can weaken us. It can weaken us. Bible says in Proverbs chapter number 1, My son, if sinners entice thee, consent thou not. If they say, Come with us, let us lay wait for blood. Let us lurk privily for the innocent without cause. Let us swallow them up alive as the grave and whole as those that go down into the pit. We shall find all precious substance. We shall fill our house with spoil. Cast in thy lot among us. Let us all have one purse. That sounds like a politician. Verse 15 says, My son, walk not thou in the way with them. Refrain thy foot from their path. Say, preacher, I want to be blessed. That's a word, isn't it? Boy, you hear it everywhere. Blessed, blessed, blessed. I'm just blessed. I'm just blessed. You want want to know how to be blessed? Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. Surround yourself by people that build you up in Christ if you want your life to be built up in Christ. Let me make one final observation. I'm done. I ain't even going to preach it. But, you know, it's interesting in chapter number 31... Jacob begins to talk to his wives about what has happened and why they have to leave. It says in verse 4, Jacob sent and called Rachel and Leah to the field unto his flock and said unto them, I see your father's countenance that is not toward me as before, but the God of my father hath been with me. 
Ye know that with all my power I have served your father, and your father hath deceived me and changed my wages ten times. But God suffered him not to hurt me. If he said thus, the speckled shall be thy wages, then all the cattle bear speckled. And if he said thus, the ring straight shall be thy hire, then bear all the cattle ring straight. Thus God hath taken away the cattle of your father and given them to me. And it came to pass at the time that the cattle conceived that I lifted up mine eyes and saw in a dream, and behold, the rams which leaped upon the cattle were ring straight, speckled, and grizzled or spotted. And the angel of God spake unto me in a dream, saying, Jacob, and I said, Here am I. And he said, Lift up now thine eyes and see all the rams which leap upon all the cattle are ring straight, speckled, and grizzled, for I have seen all that Laban doeth unto thee. Ha, this is an interesting development. You know, what's the old saying? Everybody has a plan until they're hitting the mouth. Jacob had said to Laban, here's what we'll do. Every one of them that is discolored in any way, that's going to be my hire. And that worked good for about six minutes. And then Laban showed up and looked around at a field, chock full of ring strake, spotted and speckled cattle, and said, this is a problem. (laughs) So here's what he did. He comes to Jacob and he says, listen, I've been thinking about this thing. I've never had a good conversation that began with somebody say, listen, I've been thinking about this thing. And he says, you know, here's what I think would be better, Jacob. If you really love me, you'll do this. Instead of all of them that are ring straight, spotted and speckled, how about just the ring straight ones? How about just those? Jacob said, okay. And then all of a sudden, everyone that was born was ring straight. Then... Laban comes to him. He says, you know, look at all these ring straight cattle. I'll tell you what, just to be fair, you don't want to have all of them striped. Let's let's just give you the ones that are spotted. Jacob said, okay. And all of a sudden, everyone that's born is spotted. How about just the speckled ones, Jacob? All right. Then all of a sudden, everyone is speckled. You see, his selective breeding plan was ingenious until that contract was breached. And then what he found out is that all those efforts that, yes, are legitimate, yes, bore fruit, yes, made sense, would come to no avail were it not that the hand of God Almighty was blessing him and working in his life. Let me make this one final statement. Our consecration affects us. Can I tell you something that's missing in a lot of our lives? Hey, listen, we've got the separation. We've got the consecration. We've got the company and the communion, but we're missing that walk with God. Everything in our life is ordered the way that it should. It's just He ain't got nothing to do with it. And can I tell you this? Listen, you can raise them in church. You can raise them up for the Lord. You can teach them everything. You can hold hard, high, tight standards. You can do all those things. And I recommend all that to you. But if God ain't in the middle of it, it ain't going to do any good. See, at the end of the day, having the blessing of God on your life is the thing that preempts and predominates everything else. Preacher, should I do those things? Well, yeah, all the principles we've talked about today, you should. They should be in your life. I recommend all of them to you. But if you do that and Christ is not at the very heart and center of your life, it's not going to mean anything. (laughs) Here's what Jacob tells his wife. says, I tricked your father, but then he cheated me. But then at the end of the day, God blessed me anyway. Preacher, I don't know if I can do all these things you're talking about. I don't know if I can, I don't know if I can lead my family that way. I don't know if I can really hold the line that way. Well, I'll tell you this, you'll probably fail a lot. You'll probably make some mistakes. But if you'll be humble and sincere and surrender your life to Christ, 
He'll bless you even in spite of your failures. And He'll do even what you are incapable of doing. Here's what He can do. He can produce in your life something that may not be valuable in the eyes of God or in the eyes of the world, but it's highly valued in the eyes of God. He can make you different, distinct, meaningful, and precious in this world around you. Let's bow together this morning. Musicians going to come play. And listen, I, I, I don't know what God may have said to you this morning, but I do know it was important. If He spoke to your heart about a matter, it was important. And so if God's touched your heart about something, if he's spoken to you about some area of your life, matter of your life, why don't you meet him down in this altar? Preacher, I wouldn't even know what to say. Well, just come be honest with him. He can listen. He can work with anybody but a hypocrite. Just be honest with him. Come and tell him the truth about what you're struggling with and what, what's on your heart and mind. And yield your life unto him this morning. If he showed you some area that's wrong in your life, ask his forgiveness. Ask him to cleanse you of it. Some area of your life that is lacking, ask for his strength to be able to carry out that responsibility. Some area in your life that displeases, dishonors him, ask him to help you to forsake it. But whatever it is God dealt with you about, would you deal with him today? Father, bless this invitation. May it magnify the Lord Jesus. We ask it in his name.